That said, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. We are going to talk this morning about wisdom for fathers and sons. We're going to glance mostly at the first 19 verses, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, pray, and then we will get to work. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and discipline, to understand the sayings of understanding, to receive discipline that leads to insight, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Let the wise man hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire guidance to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and Fatherly God, we are grateful today for the immeasurable graces you have bestowed on us. We readily confess that any fatherlessness we experience today is a result of failing to cry out to you, our heavenly and hallowed Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying the mercies of God to our account, adopting us into the family through the work of the Son. Help us, Holy Spirit, to know, love, and appreciate the Father's wisdom credited to our account by the Son. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a word of caution. Don't let the title of this message fool you. Mothers and daughters can glean in this field, too. When addressing fathers and sons like this, mothers and daughters may be prone to think that what is said is inapplicable and thus unimportant. But the nature of the family itself does not allow for this type of wrongheaded thinking. Each of us came from a father and mother. Indeed, all things originate from God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. Now, it is true that Adam was created first, and then Eve from Adam. However, as Paul says in that very same verse, all of mankind has his birth from the woman. Everyone comes into existence from the woman, making her not only doubly glorious, but also in one sense, it makes her preeminent in the family. As I address fatherhood in relationship to sonship, it's important to keep this in mind because mothers give birth to sons, to state the obvious, and daughters become future mothers of sons as well. So it's all tied together. So everyone has something to learn here this morning. Now, having said all of that, I want to point out something rather obvious about Western culture today. The apostate culture we swim in is an ocean of confusion and bewilderment. The institutions of our day in education or media or even politics are unremitting in their hatred for God's design for the family. And this is obviously most potent and palpable, palpable during the month of June, uh, dubbed Pride Month. And the seeds of today's revolutionary fervor were planted 50 to 60 years ago when rebellious men believed that the key to human growth and sanctification is unmitigated sexual license. So in order to transcend the perceived problems of 
Christianity vis-a-vis -vis the family and what Christianity gives the world with the strength of godly families, in order to get rid of those things, man had to break out of that mold, had to insist upon all sorts of debauchery, and of course the consequences of which are still felt today. Now we have right now in our world is a famine of fatherlessness, what Doug Wilson calls father hunger. We have father hunger, a famine striking our nation in the Western world. Statistically, if you were to even just look at basic statistics, children are far more likely to not only grow up without a father, but most expect to grow up without a father too. And the numbers are staggering. You'll have to go look them up yourself. But American culture is increasingly fatherless. Should a son or daughter survive the womb, he or she may grow up in a variety of scenarios, uh, without a father, without a mother, or without father or mother, and so on. And the state, of course, becomes the immediate nanny, and social ills are the result. So this, this sort of new revolutionary discipleship program celebrates things like abdication and irresponsibility. And those two things go completely against God's call for men. And these detrimental conditions cause all sorts of physical, mental, spiritual, social problems, all of which I think is entirely self-evident. You don't need me to go into detail. Now the answer to the famine, this fatherlessness, this famine, this father hunger that we have, the answer is in the gospel. It can all be boiled down to the gospel. The son, that is Jesus, exhibits sonship in such a way as to bring us back to our hallowed heavenly Father. When we are bought with the blood of Christ, we are brought back to the Father. We were estranged and were brought in, were adopted, we were orphans, were brought into his kingdom. And thus we can, by his grace, be the fathers and sons that God requires. And the wisdom required is found in Proverbs. So let's look at our text. The opening section of Proverbs 1 sets the tone for the rest of the book. Verses 1 through 6 leads us to the crescendo of verse 7. And a couple of things you need to notice. First, the name of the book comes from the first Hebrew word, and that's translated as Proverbs. These are wise sayings, and these are from Solomon. He was a son of David, and we know he was also a father. And if you recall, he had, he had asked God for wisdom and discernment, and God granted this request. God was pleased to give this gift. It was a great option, a great choice. He made the right one. Now, other than Jesus, Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. Solomon is a son and a father, and he's giving wisdom to sons and future fathers. Second, we have a list of topics which are explored throughout the book. These are prizes to obtain should the treasure hunter be determined to do so. And that's what sons need to be. Sons need to be treasure hunters. Now, in order to increase in learning, a man has to understand certain things and acquire guidance. That's in verse 5. Back in verse 2, wisdom and discipline or correction is essential to understanding any sayings of understanding. It's all tied together. If you want to be wise, you've got to pursue wisdom. In verse 3, we find that a wise son receives discipline. That leads to insight. It leads to righteousness, justice, and equity. If you want righteousness, justice, and equity in a society, we must have wisdom in the home. 
Verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. Prudence means shrewd living, being smart and wise about your life. And he also says that for the simple or the foolish, it's essential to gaining understanding. Now, youth need knowledge and discretion as part of the formula too. And I will say, I agree or disagree, that's okay, but I think we expect too little from our youth today. We expect too little. What's the lowest common denominator here? What's the lowest educational bar that we can get them over? You know, Jonathan Edwards at 12 years old knowing Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and quite proficiently. We've changed a lot as a culture, but I think we expect too little. In verse 6, we see that the Proverbs and Enigmas, these are the words of the wise and their riddles, and they are part of what it means to grow in maturation. So if, if what Solomon is saying is if you want to become wise, if you, if you commit yourself to the, to the study of, of wisdom here in the book of wisdom, then one will reap the rewards of wisdom. Now, where does all of this begin? Well, what, what is the foundation of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding? If one were to build a house of wisdom, what sort of concrete must he pour? Verse 7 tells us, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of knowledge. That is where it all starts. That's the foundation, the fear of Yahweh. Ignorant fools, he says, despise wisdom and discipline, or some translations say knowledge. If a father can teach his son anything, it's this principle of first things. If you as a father can teach your sons anything, it's this. Yahweh, the God of Israel, must be feared. He must be dreadfully revered. Then and only then does one begin to walk the path of wisdom. Ignorant fools, Solomon says, who suppress the truth about God, they exchange the truth about God for a lie, that's Romans 1, they despise true wisdom and knowledge. Unbelievers only possess wisdom and discipline to the degree that their image-bearing conforms to the will of God. Otherwise, they are fools. That's, uh, by the way, when the... When the the fool says in his heart, there is no God, the psalmist writes. That's a moral indictment. To call someone a fool is not just to you know, get your anger out. A fool in the Bible is someone that has, a, has a, a moral problem. Now, that's the introduction. In verse 8, we run into this oft-repeated phrase, hear, my son. The father wants his son to listen. We see the father appeal to his son over 20 times in the entire book. In fact, chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 all begin with a fatherly appeal to the son. Hear, my son. Listen, my son. So here, the father warns the son to listen to the father's discipline while simultaneously not abandoning his mother's instruction. So moms, you have an instruction here to give as well. Now, discipline, when we think of discipline, usually many of us will conjure up all sorts of images. We think of discipline in the military and how you uh, do your duties and what you learn at boot camp and so on. Or discipline, we often think of consequences and things like that. But discipline, really, at its core, means instruction and guidelines. You want people to be disciplined, meaning you want them to follow guidelines and follow the rules. They're rules for wisdom, as it were. The father appeals to the son here, asking him to hear or listen to such wisdom so that things will go well for him. Fathers want their sons to listen to truth and godliness and conform to wisdom and maturation, lest they have 
problems, but they should also listen to their mother as well. She's involved here in verse 8. She has an instruction or a law. In the Hebrew, it's Torah, the Torah, the law. Moms need to lay down the law, and the law you're laying down is the Torah. The father's discipline and the mother's law are both, in verse 9, a garland of grace for your head and ornaments about your neck. They are prizes that are awarded to children. But this comes with great responsibility. Remember what Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is what? Required. There are dangers involved, and parents who take care to love their children will advise them accordingly. Verse 10, look at verse 10. It warns this, My son, if sinners entice you, do not be willing. When sinners want you to enroll, do not volunteer. When sinners want you to jump on board, run the other way. Sin is enticing. You ever wonder why? Why is sin enticing? Sin is enticing because we like it. We like it. It makes us feel a certain way. We give ourselves to temptation and sin because we get something out of it. Now, it's short-sighted and foolish. We know that. But that's why sin happens, because we think it's positive. We think it's something that's good and nourishing for our souls. So we do it. But we must not like it. Fathers are under obligation to warn their sons about the temptations and subsequent dangers of sin. And what might happen? Well, here's a case study, verse 11. In in verses 11 and 12, it alerts us that sinners may entice you to do violence to the innocent. You may be enticed to do violence to the innocent. Not only are they murderers, they are thieves too, verse 13. Because there can be power in numbers, they might want you to join in on the crime and the resultant prize, verse 14. Think about this scenario, and this is not a pleasant scenario, so I'll just warn you up front. But if you could share $10 billion with a few of your friends, if only you'd murder a little old lady, would you do it? Now let me tell you, that's a terrible, that's what Solomon's arguing here, essentially. If you could oppress the weak, any, pick anybody, a child, you name it. If you could, if you could have a, a, a huge score at the end of it, would you do it? Well, let me say, I think many would. People have killed for far less. However, the father warns the son not to walk with them, nor walk on their pathway, verse 15. The walking that they do, that evildoers do, is running headlong into evil, willing to shed innocent blood, verse 16. Sinners want to do things in secret, and sometimes they are caught, verse 17. But their MO, their mission objective, is always lying in wait, not realizing that they damage themselves. They ambush their own lives, verse 18 says. So when when driven by greed, a man can do great harm to himself and others. But that's the path they walk, and that path is self-destructive. So fathers want their sons to not be self-destructive. They want them to walk the path of godliness. And whenever sinners, those who are covenant breakers, those who entice you to do evil, what do fathers want their sons to do? To stand strong for righteousness and not follow that pathway. Now, Proverbs is a father's wisdom to a son. That's really what the book is. It's Solomonic wisdom for sons. And he warns about so many different things. In chapter 2, verse 1, he urges his son to receive and, and, and treasure his commandments. So don't just hear. 
Don't just obey, love. We must hear, obey, love. Don't just hear it and don't just hear it and, and obey it. We want our children to love the standard of God's word, not just obey it because they think it's some sort of self-righteous experiment. So we want our sons to love the right things. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the father urges the son to resist forgetfulness of his law and to see to it his heart guards those commandments. Why? Well, Because days, years, and peace will be added to his son's life. If, if, if you sons want to live a long life, the Bible says you need to follow God's plan, God's will, God's law. In, verses, back in, uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we see this intergenerational wisdom being applied. The, the father is applying the tested wisdom that his father applied. And then you get to chapter 5. The son is to pay attention to my wisdom, he says there in verse 1. And incline your ear to my discernment. Well, why? Well, so that he can keep discretion and so your lips may guard knowledge. Also in chapter 5, there's this really interesting section there around verse 19. The father warns the son about women. And the son should be satisfied with his own wife, he says. Be intoxicated always with her love, verse 19. And the father rhetorically asks the son, So why should you, my son, this is verse 20, be intoxicated with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a foreign woman. You see, fathers must help their sons remain sexually pure before marriage and even afterwards. Because he's talking about after marriage here. So all throughout Proverbs, the father warns the son about managing and stewarding wealth, how to handle your finances, um, hard work, responsibility, avoiding temptation, running away from sin and sinners, resisting tomfoolery. He teaches about time management, how to respond to evil, uh, dealing with anger, leading his wife and family, ministering to unbelievers, and learning diligence in every area of life. So the book of Proverbs teaches fatherly wisdom in order to train godly sons to be future men. It celebrates mothers, it celebrates daughters. The famous Proverbs 31 woman, a great passage, says a lot about the man in there too. Celebrates wives and women. It helps us to learn to, to give honor to whom honor is due. How to control the tongue. It's wisdom for all of life. Everything you can think of, Solomon has covered it. Either here or in Ecclesiastes or elsewhere. And I think this is a, Proverbs is a treasure chest for the family. So as I ask at our church, Cross and Crown, how then shall we live? That is a question when we look at a text, how then shall we live? Well, having considered the passage, I, I came up with five rules for fathers and sons that ought to help us learn ways to strengthen our families so that our churches can be strengthened, so that our nations can be strengthened. Because it goes, it goes from the living room to the church to the nation. And if men are be, to be men, Proverbs 31.3 says they must not give their strength to women. So we need, we need manly men. And manly men, you know, isn't about how much, you know, how many brats you can consume in one sitting or how hard you cheer for your sports team. That's not manhood. But instead of that, men must go to the Father in heaven 
We must go to the Father in heaven. We need to learn from Him. We need to learn from His work with God the Son and what Jesus does for us in forgiving us and establishing us. And then from there, in the Spirit, we might become the fathers that God has called us to be. And we might help our sons become the fathers and men they're supposed to be. And again, to emphasize, the gospel is absolutely required for this. You have to know and experience the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done. Fathers can only be fathers when they know and commune with our Heavenly Father, when they know that the basis of that is because of the work of the Son. So, without further ado, here are the five rules for fathers and sons. So if you're a note-taker, this is your time to shine. Five rules for fathers and sons. Number one, fathers must be present to celebrate their sons. Fathers must be present to celebrate their sons. One of their most remarkable passages on fatherhood is found at Jesus' baptism. In Matthew 3, I'll repeat that for those of you who may have missed it, fathers must be present to celebrate their sons. In Matthew 3, we read this. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him, and behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the baptism of Jesus, the Father was there. He was present. He was accounted for. And his presence was made known by the sending of the Holy Spirit. He also revealed his presence by speaking. What the Father said to the Son is also noteworthy. He affirmed the identity of Jesus. This is my beloved Son. He affirmed the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Son. He's the Son of the Father. In expressing this identity, the Father stated that he loved him. He is my beloved Son. The Father treasures his Son. And finally, the father took it upon himself to find great joy and pleasure in the son. This is my beloved So Emphasize all of those. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And keep going down the verse. All of that. The fatherhood isn't simply about presence. It's not simply about presence. It's action. It's expression. It's joy, it's celebration, exuberance, it's peace and kindness and, 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 and goodness. It's heartfelt gratitude and affirmation of the son or even the daughter showing and expressing your love with hugs and kisses and bedtime prayers and being the loudest to scream and yell at the sports event, if you must. See, our culture today has absent fathers, which means insecure sons are left without affirmation, and thus father hunger takes root in a society. Fathers simply must be present with the express purpose of celebrating their sons, being proud of them, and saying, this is, you are my son, and I am well pleased with you. Fatherhood is a joy, and if it's not shared, the hearts of our sons will drift into the sea of uncertainty. So that's number one. Fathers must be present to celebrate their sons. Number two, fathers must teach, and sons must be teachable. Fathers must teach, and sons must be teachable. Without guidance, sons can be rather stupid. 
the ladies are mostly laughing because they understand what men do. And oftentimes it doesn't make sense. That's why God gave us, you ladies, for common sense, because we lack it. Now we laugh at this, but it is true. Men can be boneheaded, and when stubbornness is added to the formula, the results aren't pleasant. But over and over again, the father is seen teaching his son about wisdom and instruction, and, and even the mother ought to reiterate God's law in the home. And the home is supposed to be a place of instruction, which means the father, who is the head of the home, is in charge, and he, is, he is, has the charge to make sure that all of this is taking place. Is the home a place of teaching and instruction? Now, teachability... Well, and remember, part of the teaching is making sure that our sons are teachable. It's not just download information into their brain and expect them to just, you know, be exactly like you. Because heaven help us if our sons are just like us. (laughs) We just want the good qualities. But teachability is a mark of humility. Teachability is a mark of humility. If one believes that he knows it all, the one thing he doesn't know is that he is now stuck in the quicksand of pride, which most emphatically means that he does not know it all. He lacks self-awareness. He doesn't, he doesn't know it. Who of us knows? How many here know exactly what you don't know? That's the trouble with wisdom. See, fathers need to help their sons to know what they do not know. Fathers need to help their sons to know what they do not know. Our homes are a boot camp in some degree. We must train our sons to pursue wisdom and knowledge, to exercise discernment and maturity. In fact, they must know how to pursue wisdom and knowledge. And fathers must begin with Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, where it all begins, the fear of Yahweh. Fathers ought to show by their actions what it means to be teachable. Do your sons see you in the word? Not that you're showboating. Hey, come look at how great I am in my Bible reading. Watch me. Sit there. Not that. Are you teaching how to pray? How to pursue sound doctrine? How and why to join a local church? Tithing and giving to the church? Submitting to godly leadership? Are you teaching them how to sing with joy? How to encourage others? How to serve and lead? Fathers must teach their sons how to be future men, and they must teach their sons how to be teachable, how to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And masculinity, what does it mean to be a man? I'll tell you. I know the secret. Masculinity is bleeding sacrifice. And I know because that's what Jesus did. It's bleeding sacrifice. The heart of a child must be steered away from sin so that our sons know that God expects them to take up their cross and follow Jesus. So teaching is non-negotiable here. It's not whether a son will be taught, but which sorts of doctrine will he be taught? Will he be taught the way of Christ, or will he be taught the way of the world? Number three, fathers must give their sons tools for living. Fathers must give their sons tools for living. If this seems like a difficult task, it is. The book of Proverbs is, in many ways, it's a tool shed for fathers and sons. It helps us to know what tool to use for which job. For example, Proverbs 25, 28, like a city that is broken into and without a wall is a man without restraint over his spirit. Or Proverbs 14, 29, which explains that he who is slow to anger has great discernment, but he who is quick-tempered raises up folly. 
As we live our lives, it's inevitable that at some point, something or someone will make us mad. I know you don't struggle with that, but sometimes we get mad. But how should we respond? Well, shall we drive a nail into the wood with a shovel? What tool do you need to deal with anger? Certain tools are used for certain applications, and it is up to the father to teach his son how to control his spirit. And that is a difficult task, because even as an adult and as a father, we struggle with it. So help them to see what repentance looks like, too. How should a young man manage his money? A father must show him. How should a young man control his tongue? A father must show him. How might a young man learn to be mature? A father must show him. And while we're here, we need to keep in mind that oftentimes the lessons a father can teach a son come from past mistakes. Some of my best learning in life has not come from a lecture or even a book, but from making mistakes. Amen? <laughs> a wise father knows how to help his son learn from his sins and folly so that he might grow to be a mature man. I think that's the nature of parenting. That's a secret nobody tells you about. What's your, how do you be, how are you a good parent? Well, just make sure they don't screw up the way you did. Great, great wisdom. All right. And maturity is, is what we are after, Hebrews 5 says. Number four, fathers must exhibit and teach responsibility. Fathers must exhibit and teach responsibility. And sons must learn self-control. Fathers must exhibit and teach responsibility, and sons must learn self-control. When God made Adam, he gave him responsibility. Adam was to work and keep or to guard and protect everything in his sphere of authority. Adam's job was to work the ground and guard the garden sanctuary. And he was to mature and lead, and he was also to protect his wife. Because Adam allowed the serpent to beguile his wife, thus he did not protect her in that moment, sin entered into the world as a result. And what are the two, what are the two chief sins of men? Abdication and pride. And that's straight from Genesis. Abdication and pride. Immature men always abdicate their calling under God. They always forfeit. They would rather take the easy way out. Immature men neglect their duties and oftentimes do so with pride swelling in their heart. And our culture today, I think it's self-evident, encourages this sort of laziness and ignorance. Pagan worldviews, world non-Christian worldviews, will always feed off of weak men. And that's what our culture today wants, to eradicate manhood from the face of the earth. The future is female, they cry in the streets. Well, there's no future if you don't have both. However, Christian men who name the name of Christ, who worship and serve the Heavenly Father, we know we must not abdicate, we must stand tall, stand strong, and we must not neglect our duties. Fathers must exhibit responsibility in the home. This means that fathers like Job, sometimes you just have to do the hard work of repentance for your children and even your wife. That's what Job did in making sacrifice. The responsibility is yours, men. It's ours. Manhood is the, the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility, as Wilson calls it. It's the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. Fathers must embrace their God-given call to maturity, exhibiting wisdom. So wisdom means grasping reality and responding accordingly. We need to exhibit strength, so bearing weight and not complaining about it. And we need to exhibit workmanship, 
developing and using our talents to the glory of God. And Christians, Christian fathers, we know we need to learn from the Heavenly Father, and thus, doing so, we will demonstrate and teach responsibility. And a son must learn self-control, for if he does not, he will be engulfed by pride, lust, and selfish gain. He will destroy his life if he's not self-governed. A son whose heart is full of folly and greed is more likely to end up in jail than on his knees in repentance. That's why discipline's important, to drive it out of the heart. Number five, finally, fathers must teach their sons how to worship the living God. Fathers must teach their sons how to worship the living God. While Proverbs is full of wisdom and instruction on training our sons how to live, we cannot forget that the basis of it all is the worship and service of the triune God. We need to teach our sons how to worship the living God. The great problem with the human heart is its sinful sinful proclivity to worship someone or something other than God. We are very quick to love an idol and make one. And if you fathers are training your children to worship a generic God, a sky daddy, as some blasphemously suggest, if you're raising them to worship a generic God, you should not be surprised when your children walk away from the generic brand of Christianity that you've fed them. Fathers must teach their children to honor the exalted, glorified, sovereign, and gracious Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Spirit who comes to us because of the Father and the Son. This is the gloriously Trinitarian God we serve. The only true God who does not permit any rivals. This is the God our sons must be taught to fear and honor, to worship and serve exclusively. Fathers are lords, they're not bosses. They're protectors, not infants. They must rule over their homes in all humility so that their sons can go and do likewise. And the rulership that God requires fathers is one of bleeding sacrifice. It's one of self-control and responsibility. I love how one author puts it. He said, men don't carry things because they happen to have broad shoulders. They have broad shoulders because God created them to carry things. Communication with our sons, like what we see at Jesus' baptism, is essential. Sons must unquestionably know the the Father's love. They must remember what they've been taught when situations arise in the future. Fathers need to continually challenge their sons to think like God would have them to think. Fathers need to continually challenge them in this way. And this responsibility is great. It's an enormous responsibility. And it's not a burden. It's a gift and a joy. If you treat it like a burden, then you're not communing with, with the Father. You're not communing with Christ the Son. So fathers, we must accept it. We must accept it joyfully. And you must realize that your only source of strength is the Father in heaven who has sent his Son to die in your place and rise for your justification. And you cannot be a good father if you don't know the Father in heaven. You cannot help your sons be good and wise sons if they do not know how to worship and serve the Son of God. They need to know how to be cleansed by the forgiveness of Christ. They need to know how to be consecrated unto God for his service. Fathers have the immense responsibility of teaching their sons 
that the joy of the Lord is truly their strength. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen.